That intro is very kind. I like to refer to myself as the amateur pastor um, uh, because the amateur is a a really dear word to me. Um, We often think of as amateur as just someone that doesn't do something very well, and that's part of it. Um, (laughs) But but really, amateur comes from the 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 Latin word um, amateur, which is it just means lover, Uh, and it's the lover. It's the person who can love a game for the game because they're not being competitive. And, uh, uh, and I think that the, the amateur is the very thing that the world needs today in the church is, as uh, Robert Farrar Capone said, one who can look the world back to grace, um, who, uh, who doesn't take a lot of things uh, seriously, but thinks that boredom is a sin. And so, <laughs> uh, so I, as Andrew said, I am working on a book and actually the hard deadline is this Friday um, by my publisher. So I'm going to a cabin on the Deschutes just in Warm Springs after I hope the smoke is, just stays so that I actually stay working. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, the book uh, is, is entitled um, Stumbling Toward Eternity. And, it, and it's a book that basically looks at the centrality of the cross as a means of navigating um, our past, our present, and our future. Uh, that the cross is the center of the Christian life. That if we remove the cross from Christianity, we literally drain Christianity of its blood. Uh, there is no talking of the life of Jesus or of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can't talk about resurrection because we're insinuating that there was first death. And this is why the cross has always been the central symbol of Christianity. And the absurdity of the cross, the paradox of the cross, is that it always speaks to two unbelievable realities that are at a collision with each other. And that is the the fundamental impotence of humanity, that we are so much more broken. I always like to tell our people in, in the most encouraging way every week at Door of Hope, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are. And that's good news because the gospel is not about climbing our way towards self-realization, which is what our world is promoting continually, but it is about a God's descent into our brokenness that no matter how deep our sin goes, God's love goes deeper still. And the cross is the emblem of that and why it is that Paul said, I have determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Um, So I wanna just begin. my book is actually a combination of memoir. I'm an obsessive reader, uh, and specifically literature. I just really, really love literature. In another life, I would have been a literature professor or something. Uh, but right now, I'm trying to learn how to tattoo. So it's, there's just so many things. Uh, the amateur is actually just another word for scattered, and uh, I'm a walking, unfinished event. I just tattooed my wife's portrait on my thigh the other day. It's harder than it sounds, tattooing yourself. It really hurt. <laughs> I actually got queasy at one point. I'm like, this, I don't, why am I doing this? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm going to share with you guys a story to kind of set, set the premise for to today's message. I might get that first slide up. Uh, this is, my, this is my dad, uh, Alexander. He looks like Kurt Cobain. That's my mom, Shelly. That's me. Um, and I want to just share with you this, this story that I think will help us understand why the cross is so important. A dysfunctional family is any family that is more than one person in it. In other words, the boat I can feel so lonely in actually holds us all. That's from Mary Carr, the Liars Club. A dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. Is that not true of the church too? Huh? <laughs> I always say, you don't get to pick your family. You know, get to pick your family. My earliest memory is vivid, and it's one that's out of body and silent when I play through it in my mind. And I see myself in the backseat of a car, and I'm feeling panic and tears as I watch through the window my parents soundless screaming outside, mom like a wild animal hitting dad. My parents were divorced when I was one, and on this visit, dad was drunk and had put me in the back of his car. Mom later told me I kept crying, please don't let him take me mommy, while dad yelled he's my son too. I can see the scene, but I do not hear it, and what is etched upon my mind is two people fighting over me in front of me, but I'm invisible. And despite the silence of the remembered event, today I find the emotions of it still present and making an impact. Forty 
years later, I was visiting my dad in his rundown, filthy cigarette-stained home in rural Alaska. He lives in Soldotna. This is just a couple years ago. Between drags of his camel reds and sips of vodka, his greasy hair stuck to his forehead, highly flammable breathing tube in his nose, which he didn't care that he was putting me at danger. Um, Dad speaks to me about the incident in a crackling baritone voice that never seems to have enough air. I'm still pissed at you for that, Joshua. For what? That you didn't want to be with me. I was two. I'm still pissed. As with most conversations with my father these days, this conversation had suddenly come to an end. There is a stilted and abrupt quality to his speech as it moves without warning between nostalgia, worry, agitation, and sudden silence. I'm sure this is due to a lifetime of substance abuse as well as the impact of years of isolation. Words are spoken and then abandoned as he retreats back into an interior solitude which matches the loneliness of the landscape in which he lives. You didn't want to be with me. How could he say that to me? The words pressed down on me with a near otherworldly significance, not because they were true, but because they were honest. He felt rejected, angry, and alone, and he had pushed the feelings down and hid until now. Finally, he had confessed. I was there like his priest. And he had released his grievance, and we were left with the sadness and the absurdity of the words, which stood between us as cold and oppressive as the permanent twilight and sub-zero weather outside. But as I sat in the discomfort of that smoke-filled space, an understanding began to slowly wash over my frustration in what I can only describe as a holy intervention. As Dad stared out the window at the snow-covered ground, fighting to breathe, I saw him in his brokenness as a child, and there I found compassion, and my lips unlocked and my tongue loosened. I'm sorry, Dad. It's okay, Joshua. I'm just having a hard time at the moment, son. I know, Dad. I love you. I love you too, son. I'm glad you're here. Your old man is usually tougher than this. I know, Dad. End of conversation. And there was peace mingled in the sadness as we sat there quietly watching one of Dad's favorite shows, Little House on the Prairie. And there on the screen was Pa Ingalls pleading in a field for God to save his son. It seemed like a strange portent, and I pleaded silently the same for my dad. You know, when I read that story, I'm struck with the overwhelming sense of sadness and loneliness that my father feels, but at the same time, the reason that I was there in Alaska is because of the gospel. And my father is a picture of, we all have Alexanders in our lives. We all have people that are hurting and broken. They're all around us. You don't have to look far. I mean, across the street from our house, I'm right now trying to minister to a family that aren't Christians who the father of the house who was 54 years old just died of a brain tumor, leaving behind an 18-year-old son, a 20-year-old daughter, and a 21-year-old son, and a wife that he'd been married to for 32 years. There is brokenness all around us, and people are desperately desiring to belong, to know that they're loved. One of the things that the cross does for us when we keep that at our center is that the cross, A, has the ability to, to allow us to believe one of the most fundamental truths that one can ever state or anchor down upon, the only thing that actually compels us to move forward in life, which is that on your worst stinking day, Jesus is crazy about you. And then when you realize that that love is revealed through God's willingness to enter down into the mess of brokenness, what sets Christianity apart, I didn't come to faith till I was 27 years old. So I had, a, I had lived fully in the drugs and rock and roll life of the Seattle music scene and throughout the 90s, which I met my wife in full makeup at the Satyricon nightclub in May of 96, opening for the Dandy Warhols. I mean, I was living the rock star dream. I hadn't talked to my dad in five years when I met my wife. And I, and I talked to him once, after we met, and then I didn't talk to him again after I got saved until I was leading a church. And I read that passage, children honor your mother and father, and I was frustrated that there wasn't a contingency on it. Like, honor your mother and father if they were awesome. But as I started off with, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are. And I realized that if God could forgive me so much 
the trail of wreckage that I left behind myself in all of those years of pursuing rock and roll and the drugs and the girls and everything that went with that lifestyle and the pride and the arrogance. I just came across an article uh, from when we were on the cover of, of The Rocket in like 96 when we were first, when we first got signed. And it was like, I was so pompous. I was like, just totally stating like, I will be on the cover of Rolling Stone in like two years. Do you guys remember that issue? Yeah, you don't because it never happened. Um, <laughs> and this is why humility is best learned through the school of humiliation. <laughs> so, and I listened to the recordings and I'm like, we were not that good. It's one of the fundamental, never trust your belief in yourself. Never trust it. If I could teach young people anything, it's that you really aren't as good as you think you are. Because I thought I was good. I'm like, we are going to be the next Beatles. Not even close. Not... <laughs> Not even, not even a subpar Seattle band. Um, but I, I think about this, this, this time of, of God saving me in the depths of this brokenness. And now I'm this believer and I've met Jesus and I'm leading a church and my father is dying from a lifetime, 40 years. He drinks an average of two-fifths of vodka a day. He does not look like a young, handsome Kurt Cobain anymore. He looks like a crazy... Like, just imagine a more weathered version of Willie Nelson. And Willie Nelson's pretty weathered. And I'm saying my dad looks like Willie Nelson after going on a bender from being on a bender for his whole life. <laughs> so he's like, I mean, he just looks haggard. And his face is swollen. He doesn't eat. He's had toes removed because he hasn't walked in years. He's in the ICU every other month. And God has said, you can't say you love me and refuse that same love for your father. And the cross is the only thing that will bring to your understanding this reality. Look uh, with me at this first, at this first verse. Um, if we can go to the next slide. First Corinthians chapter two, verse two, Paul says, for I determined to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I think that this is a, a powerful thing for us to understand because if we're going to actually enter into the brokenness of people's lives like my father, we actually have to understand what it is that we have been saved from. Do we realize, I mean, I think it's one of the few gifts that I have as being one that got saved late in life is I know exactly what I got saved from. And I think that for Darcy and I, my wife came to faith two years after me. And I think that that's one of the things that actually has allowed us to, to effectively start and, and lead a church in a city as crazy as Portland, which Dwarf Hope now is 12 years old. Uh, and we've always seen just a ton of people coming to faith because Portland is a truly post-Christian city. Um, and this, the thing for us that I, that I realized we've been called to is, I thought we were the people that were going to be primarily called to the, to the lost out there. And I do a lot of speaking for the Palau's. But I realize that we have a unique voice into Christians' lives who have grown up in the church, um, who, have, who have become bored with their faith, who have become unmoved by the same old message, that they haven't actually met the living Christ in a way that, that brings an, an, an awareness of their own lostness without him and a gratitude at the fact that his work was so complete that even in their ignorance, they're still loved. That is a powerful reality. But I love what Paul says here is that he says, listen, he says the, that I have determined to know nothing among you, anything except for Jesus Christ and crucified. Now think about this when we think about the church today and think about the apostle Paul, who is probably one of the most brilliant men. I mean, he was definitely a genius. Uh, you can't explore. Uh, uh, Coleridge, the great English poet, said that Romans is the most profound piece of literature um, in the Western canon. I mean, it is, it is so profound. Its arguments are so deep. He was a man who was versed, uh, obviously, as a devout Jew. Uh, but he was also, also well-versed in Greek philosophy. I mean, he was a, he was a man who had a, a full understanding of the workings of the culture and the world, and at the same time, a full understanding of, of just all that Jesus had fulfilled in fulfilling the law. And Paul comes as a conduit of the gospel of grace. And the man who knew all of these things said, listen, I'll sum it up to this. I've determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I believe one of the reasons that we are not 
meeting the broken in their brokenness is because we have actually turned the Christian faith into a, into a self-discovery experience. And what we need to understand is that self-discovery or self-actualization, the default setting of the human heart, is not toward total surrender. It tends to be towards self-realization. Our, our bookstores are filled with this tweetable drivel that is promoted. One of the biggest New York sellers over the last like four years is you're a bad A and you don't know it. Have you guys seen that book? It's like a yellow cover. It annoys me every time I see it. How to live your awesome self life now. I'm like, I think a more helpful book would be you're bad and an A and you should know it. <laughs> Which is, the publisher turned it down. I don't understand why. Christians are so easily disturbed. Um, it, but I, but I think about like think about our own contribution to this same genre, often masked in what we call spiritual formation, because because self realization is hinged upon Gnostic idea, ideologies. Gnosticism is the is the fundamental belief that one comes to enlightenment or self understanding through the heroic inward and upward journey. It's the climbing, the symbol is always a ladder. And the ladder is there's rungs. And, you, you know, generally any kind of self-realization, uh, self-actualization, the self-actualization authors always present themselves as gurus who have arrived at somewhere that you have not yet arrived. Isn't, is that not how it works? But how often do we as pastors play that same role? And I think what it creates is a, is, is, is a false premise that actually leaves people, rather than refreshed in the gospel of Jesus, actually leaves the adherents within the church exhausted by the fact that we were told out there that if you put your faith in Jesus, he will save you, and that you can't do anything to earn that salvation. It is a free gift. Freely offered must be freely received. And yet the moment people receive that gift, we get them into the church and then we pile on them new rules, new laws, new ladders to climb that are more exhausting than what they were climbing out there in the world. And I think that this is the problem when we don't have the cross at the center because the cross is the great leveler of the human ego. That the way of ascent for us is the way of descent. That the Christian life is not a heroic climb to transcendence. In fact, there's only one time in the Bible that the word ladder appears. And it's actually in Genesis chapter 28. And it's when Jacob is given a vision. Uh, and it, he's in Bethel and he has a vision. He lays his head down on a rock and he has, what a weird thing to lay your head on. And he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder from heaven to earth, and there are angels ascending and descending upon it. And then God is at the top of the ladder, and he proclaims over Jacob his covenantal promise that through him, all nations would be blessed. That, that he would bless his seed, that, that he, would, he was going to fulfill the covenant that he made to his to. Uh, to Abraham is going to be fulfilled through his father Isaac, is going to now be fulfilled through him. He's going to actually complete that, that mission. The power of the, the dream is that the latter seems to communicate the inaccessibility, the, the, the distance, the moral distance uh, between us and God the impossibility of the climb. And so there are these angelic creatures that are ascending and descending, like God has not abandoned humanity. He's still very much engaged. In fact, when our parents fall, the first time you have the word walk in scripture is actually in Genesis immediately after the fall. And it's not our parents walking toward God. It's God walking toward them in their sin. They're the ones hiding, which is why I think it's beautiful that the scripture is constantly telling us to walk with God, to walk in love, to walk in Christ. Uh, there is this, it's a walk of communion, not a walk of clearing his mind in anger, but it's a, it's a walk toward humanity, saying, come be with me, walk with me. Jesus' words, follow me. He doesn't say where he's going, because it doesn't matter as long as he's the one that's leading. 
But here we have this reality. This ladder creates this distance. And the mystery, we, see, we hear the covenant. The covenant is what it is. God keeps his word. He's going to fulfill his covenant. And we know that the fulfillment of that covenant comes through Jesus. What we didn't realize is that Jesus also himself gives us the interpretation of the vision. And we often miss this because the only reference to Jacob's ladder comes in John chapter 1 verse 51. At the very end of the chapter, Jesus says, You're, you believe because I told you I saw you beneath the tree? I tell you, you'll see greater things than this for you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In other words, Christ is the ladder. He is God come down to us. This is why the gospel is down to earth, and we should be down to earth in our communication of it. That it's not an inward and upward movement for us as believers, but it is an outward and downward movement. Diane Comer was speaking at this uh, this. Um, leadership retreat that Andrew and I were at um, in, in Lake Tahoe. And in Tahoe, she said, you know, the Celts had this ancient tradition of the, the thin place, uh, which is that there are these certain places where heaven and earth seem to come close together. Uh, and, the, and she said, Tahoe for me has always been a thin place. And I meditated on that. And not to disagree with her, because it was a strange reality. Like if you woke up early in the morning, the, the lake was so so, uh, so crystal clear with no movement that the sky and the lake would merge. It was really, really beautiful, like optical illusion. It's crazy. But I would argue that the thin place, because what happens when Jacob wakes up from that dream? Do you guys remember what he says? God was in this place and I did not know it. I would argue that the thin place is wherever Jesus is. And the thin place is probably far less likely at Lake Tahoe, and it's probably far more likely at the homeless camp, two blocks from the church that's lined with urine jugs. And when Jesus says, follow me, let me just tell you, if he told you where he was going to take you, you probably wouldn't want to walk with him. Paul says, I have determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, which means that the cross is a continual reminder of the sinfulness of humanity and the radical colliding love with that sinfulness. And this is why the church cannot turn itself inward upon this idea of trans personal transcendence. I, was, I joked at the, the thing, I, I took my, my pop shot. I believe that, the, that one of the great contributions that Christians are making to self-help is Enneagram. Um, and some of you are like, wait a minute, I love Enneagram, it's the best. Like, like you're probably, you know, an eight. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and I'm just gonna take the pop shot because I think that, I personally have this theory that evangelicals in their embracing of Enneagram is driven by the fact that you had heavy-handed parents who didn't let you celebrate Halloween or read Harry Potter. And you're like, you know what, I demand my right in Christian liberty to dabble in the occult without fear. And so look at, we're, we're equipped now with nine magic numbers, an upside down pentagram, uh, a, a weird backstory that's been given to us by a heretic, Richard Rohr, uh, that comes from a Peruvian shaman Jungian psychologist from the 40s who now has claimed that he maybe made it up, the story which is fascinating, but you're like, but it's true. So is astrology. I just want you to know, I'm as much a Gemini as I am a seven. Um, but uh, but I, I, I think it's, you know, and it gives us now this powerful ability to know ourselves and to read others with absolute precision. If it was so necessary, why did God not include it in the scripture? And I, and I, would, I, would, ask, I would ask the question of like, I mean, the I mean, if Enneagram is the new secondary Bible, I mean, how are we different than Mormons? And I think that this is part of our deal is that we're constantly trying to circumnavigate the cross. Because you, let me just tell you, friend, you will never come to an understanding of who you are on this side of eternity. The human ego is an absolute enigma. That's why psychology exists. Psychiatry, and, and, it's, and, and the mind is a mystery. I'm writing a memoir 
And what I have found is I've learned to not trust anything because I can't even trust my own memory of events in my own life. I realize that the events actually have less significance on my life than the way that I remember them. And so even if I remember it falsely, the false memory of it actually has more impact on how I live today than the actuality of the event itself. And that will really mess with you <laughs> when you start doing, I'm like, I don't even want to understand what's going on in the insanity of my brain. I'm like, I want to live outwardly and fully surrender to Jesus because it, wherever the spirit is, there is freedom. There's no freedom found in self-discovery. There's exhaustion. And honestly, disappointment. It's why David Zoll, my good friend, uh, who runs an organization called Mockingbird, said people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they are failing to become. Superficial optimism breeds ultimate despair. And I think that Psalm 14, uh, 2 through 3 from the message, gives us the best way that we can think of, of how, to, how to read humanity. God, this, I love, this is Eugene Peterson's greatest moment. God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, even God expectant, just one God-ready woman. He comes up empty, a string of zeros. Someone asks me now what my Enneagram number is. I say, I don't know. I think I'm going to go with scripture. I'm going to say a zero. <laughs> and Jesus is a 10. At Tahoe, I said my wife sometimes says I'm a 10, but she doesn't. <laughs> she said, why would you tell them that? I don't think that. That's what she said. <laughs> and I'm like, it was just hyperbolic. She's like, what's not true? <laughs> Let me just say that when Paul says, I've determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, I think what it is a reminder of is that Jesus did not come to help us achieve our dreams, but to bring life to our dead bodies. That there is no ladder to climb. There's only him. That God has come down to us. That real joy and peace is found in acceptance of his love and our impotence. His radical grace meeting us in our crippling brokenness. His gospel being down to earth reminds us of Bonhoeffer's words. Only a suffering God can help us. And this is why I love what Robert Murray McShane, the great revivalist preacher who died at 27 years old, Scottish revivalist preacher. He said, for every one look you take into your own heart, take ten looks to Jesus. Secondly, the gospel, the cross really is our freedom. If, if it's the center, if it's the, if it's the reality by which everything else must be anchored and interpreted, it should be the, the means by which we interpret everything. Look at, look at this verse in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The good news of the gospel is this is that Jesus has come to set us free. He said, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. But what we need to understand is not the freedom to do what we want. It's the freedom to begin to do what is right. But I would argue that it is a freedom that is much deeper than that. That it is actually the freedom that Jesus brings is the ability to set me free from the need to be free from the mess of existence. The freedom that the gospel brought into my life set me free from the need to be free from my father. That I could no longer stand apart from him saying I can't get my hands dirty with this man who has always, my entire life says, Joshua, I will never apologize to you for leaving because your mom's the one that didn't, let you stay with me. I always wanted you boys. I'm like, dad, you were selling cocaine. He's like, listen, your old man was just having fun. <laughs> Maybe too much fun. I'm like, literally every time I have tried to get him to engage in any sort of intelligent conversation about the fact of his abandonment of, my, of me and my brother, Jared, it like always turns into a strange, like switching of directions and then him being weirdly nostalgic about things that most people would be horrified by. Like, I remember this time when, when Big Bob and Binks broke into the front door with a half rack and I came out in my underwear with my gun. I almost shot him. Those were good days, boy. I'm like, I'm like, we're talking about real things right now, Father. <laughs> 
<laughs> Recently, I asked my dad, I'm like, dad, do you believe in hell? And he goes, absolutely. I'm like, really? And he goes, I know so many people that should go there. <laughs> I'm like, I go, what about you? And he goes, don't be ridiculous. I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Understanding's a little dim on the gospel right now. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 through 39, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I always say that we can't say we have faith in Christ and refuse to have faith for the most broken person. We can't say that we have love for Jesus and refuse love to anyone. Jesus says that your neighbor essentially is anyone who is next to you, behind you, before you, at any given point of any given day. It's funny how often we as a church are so afraid of the world out there. In a city like Portland, Christians are like, we got to get out of Portland. It's insane right now. And it is. I'm not going to lie. It is not a fun. The, the, the charm of Portlandia has been replaced with some weird, you know, post-apocalyptic, like it's, like, a, it's like a sequel to The Last Mad Max. Like, that's what it feels like right now. And, and, and if I was to be able to choose for myself where I would go retire on the Puget Sound and I'd, you know, drink wine with my wife and read novels and watch, watch uh, orcas eat seals, which is actually far less violent than the way that people in pews eat pastors. Um, so <laughs> only in Portland, only at our church. Like you can't impress, you guys are wonderful and sweet. Like Portland, yeah, I've been pastoring these people for 12 years and they're still like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if what you're saying actually matters right now. <laughs> there's, a, there's a, I always like, there's a joking, like a sort of self, we, people are like, are you guys charismatic? And I'm like, we're self-consciously charismatic. We're very aware of our surroundings, which makes us hands lifted on the inside is kind of where we sort of land. <laughs> but Christ has not led Darcy and I out of Portland. In fact, he said, these are the people you're to love. And, and every stubbornness you see in them and every reluctance and every cynical thing you see in them, everything you see in them, it's in you, Josh. And this is why the gospel is good news. And this is why we can't afford to fall into the trappings of presenting to the world an ideal that we can't keep. Because if we could actually live our way to salvation, we would have done it a long time ago. As Robert Farrar Capone said, we can only lose our way there, die our way there. And this is why the church, if it was to actually function more apostolically, it would function much more like an AA meeting than the spectacle that we often find. Because the AA meeting is a place where people come in and they find freedom from their alcoholism, not by pretending they're not alcoholics, but by actually acknowledging it in a safe place. They have a bottoming out. They come to the recognition they cannot help themselves and they need help. And if we would have recognized that we need help every day, that I can't even get to the church to preach the gospel without blowing it. The opening chapter of my book is called The Law of Mixture. And what I argue is that sin, as Martin Luther said, Jesus saved me from sin. Why didn't he save me from sinning? And the fact is, is this, is that on this side of eternity, we live in sinful bodies sinful minds, sinful hearts in a sinful world. And therefore, though we have been redeemed and though we have been forgiven past, present, and future, the fact remains that what makes us saints is that we're just sinners that have been forgiven. The sainthood is not moral perfection because Jesus puts an ideal upon us, a command upon us that we cannot actually achieve. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her. Whoever is angry with his brother without cause is, commit, is, is a murderer. You know what he's essentially saying? Everyone's adulterers, everyone's a murderer, and nobody's perfect except me. And this is why what 
what Martin Luther was pointing out and what Paul is actually declaring here is that I have been crucified with Christ. It's the daily reminder that the perfection of Christ makes his manifestation through sinful conduits like you and I. And it happens actually most powerfully when we continually recognize that we are mixture. That on my best day, I'm absolute mixture. The moments where the gospel is preached with the most power and authority, where the most people come to faith, still, I'm still wondering if my pants are too tight or if people like me or why wouldn't they laugh at my joke and why did I try to run over the cyclist on the way to the church and flip him off when I tried to go around him when I'm going to preach the gospel, realizing that he actually goes to Dora Pope. All of these things are real things. <laughs> That's not even a hyperbolic story. <laughs> really did happen. The cyclist scared me and I just reacted. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I think that kid goes to Door of Hope. And I still don't know to this day, but I apologized. I confessed it immediately to the church as I was preaching because Portland is maddening and everything makes you angry. And this is why you have to just consistently speak it out. Because sin unconfessed hides Jesus from our experience. Sin confessed becomes the very place where he meets us. That's the beauty of the gospel. And the cross is our freedom because Jesus understood how fundamentally broken we are. This is why our freedom, we're not, people are like, do you believe in free will? And I'm like, I believe in limited freedom. And that the real free people are actually Christians, but the moment you're actually free is the moment that you have responsibility because freedom is a fragile thing. It means that you have the freedom to make an absolute mess of your life. The one who is dead in their sins are not very free. <laughs> but the ones who have been born again, we're the ones that are free and we often are making a mess of our freedom because we don't realize that Jesus isn't gonna help you arrive he says, I have arrived. It is finished. But for you, it's not over yet. <laughs> and that's the, I love the, David Foster Wallace, my favorite novel ever is this book, Infinite Jest. And I love in the middle of the book, there's this passage where it says, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. And I've always loved that. I think it's such a beautiful thing. The invitation for us is not to climb, but it's to follow. And we cannot follow by trying harder, but by dying. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful reality this is. I love this, listen to this quote by Robert Farrar Capone. If he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly, therefore, and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, or intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that makes you his cup of tea. What a beautiful framework. This is what it means to die with Christ and come alive in him. The cross is also our motivation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Notice what Capone said. The only thing you can bring to him is your dead body. Whoever sins is a slave to sin, but whoever the Son of Man says free shall be free indeed. Christ's sinlessness becomes our reality. And I, I, I actually just working out this whole idea of that we're no more saints naturally than Christ is a sinner naturally. And yet Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we can actually become saints. We get the exchange is the beauty of the cross. He takes our place so that we can live in the power of his life as we surrender to him. And the love of Christ tells us that the purpose of the cross is that it brings us into this radical and most beautiful word that is the center of Door of Hope's ministry, and that is grace. A lot of people use the word grace, but they don't think about what it means. But grace is the one-way love of God, if I could borrow from Paul's all. It's a love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. It's a love coming at you and has nothing to do with you. It is being loved when you are unlovable. I come back to my dad now. My daughter taught me the greatest lesson of the cross and of grace. When she was, uh, I think she was like four years old, or 
yeah, four or five years old, and my dad had came down for the first time. I'd gone up there several times because he'd been sick, and he kept getting in the ICU, and I finally got him to fly down to be with, um, be with the family for a little bit. And, uh, and I'm going to show you a picture. This is Hattie. That's my daughter, Hattie. That very much encapsulates her personality. She dressed herself always. Um, and then, and that's my son, Henry, in the background, who's 19 now. And then this is my dad, as I said, a more weathered Willie Nelson. He looks much more intense than this now, because uh, this, was, this was so many years ago. Um, this is actually the day that they met. Both of these pictures were taken the same day. The day before my dad flew in, I was in the car with Hattie. And she says, she says Daddy, I can't wait to meet Grandpa. And I said, yeah? And she goes, I love him. And I go, because I'm a good dad? I said, how could you say that? You haven't even met him. <laughs> and, uh, and she goes, <laughs> like I said, mixture. <laughs> Maybe I've created a theological grid for myself that makes me feel okay in the world. <laughs> You're like, this guy is messed up, Andrew. You should not have invited him. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm like, and there was something in me that was like offended that she said that. I'm like, you haven't even met him. He, like, he wasn't even there for me. I'm flying him down. I want you to like him, but I don't really want you to like him. Um, and she's like, I love him because he's your dad, which means he's my grandpa, and therefore I love him. Like the logic of a child. I picked dad up at the airport, and he's nervous, and he's, on, he's at a walker. And I mean, that, he, he didn't have it there. I had put, kept it in the back car, but he wasn't walking very good. He was getting close to not being able to walk anymore. And, uh, um, and Hattie waited on the front porch for like an hour. Darcy said like she never left the front porch. She's waiting. We pull up in the car in front of the house and she runs down to the car and she opens the door for my dad. And she says, hi, grandpa, can I help you? And uh, so here's the thing, Hattie, as grace-filled as she is, she also could be a little bit of a legalist, and she hates cigarettes. And my dad is a chain smoker. Like, he wouldn't even come to my house unless he, I allowed him to smoke in my car. So he's like, that's how hardcore this guy is. So he's like, and I go, listen, Addie, Grandpa, he will not go into the house until he has a cigarette on the front porch. I know him. Like, he will not go in. And he's going to be nervous. So just... Are you okay with that? And she goes, I go, so don't say anything to him about his cigarettes, honey, okay? And she goes, okay. So we, she walks him up to the front steps, and, uh, and, and he, goes, he goes, honey, I, I got, Grandpa's got to sit down and have a cigarette. So he sits on his walker, and he lights up, like literally right in front of our front door. And he's got those cowboy boots on, and Hattie's standing next to me, and she like looks at the cigarette, and she looks up at me, and then she looks down, at his feet, and she looks up, and she goes, Grandpa? And I go, he goes, yes. And he, she's like, I really love your boots. <laughs> it's the picture of the childlike ability to see the best, to see the potential, to see the divine image, though marred, still there. To see a man who is broken and all she saw was a, was a man that she loved. She really loved him. But he had done nothing to deserve it. Nothing to earn it. He had never given her anything. There was no gifts. There was no money. There was just his dirty clothes. He smelled bad. He was a chain smoker. He's an alcoholic. He sweats. The, the, have you ever been around like a serious alcoholic? That smell of like just where their, their pores. Like, I mean, she didn't notice any of those things. It's very much like Mother Teresa who said that she found, she met with Jesus the most profoundly when she was removing maggots from lepers' faces. She said she saw in their face the face of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that we become the conduits of Jesus, but we also meet Jesus in the broken. And often our lack of experience of the power of the gospel is because we're not looking outward into the broken world. We're looking too busy inward to try to figure out how we fit into this world. Stop worrying about how you fit in and start asking the question, who am I following? Who am I following? And what is my motivation? Think about those who have climbed the highest 
and have achieved the most in the world, what are the reports that they give back to us? Do you know why we're so offended when our celebrities take their own lives? Is because they've climbed all the way to the top of the human achievement ladder and they've gotten all the way to the top and we can't even get to base camp and they look down and they say, there's nothing up here before they jump off the other side. We're not mad because we're hurt that they're gone. We're mad that they took advantage of what we think we would treat different, but it's, it's not true. Because there's nothing up there. It's a tower of Babel. It's confusion. The gospel's found down here where people are. It's the children that get it. That's why he said, let the little children come to me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. They understand it. Kids aren't around judging each other. No two-year-olds pondering their existence. They're not having existential dread. <laughs> you know why? Because a child's too busy looking outward to be focused. It's something that happens to us as we get older where we're, something turns on us and t- makes us unwell. That's why we need the gospel, which I just simply close with this statement. But we preach Christ crucified. For the cross, it's our freedom, it's our motivation, it is our message. Paul doesn't say, I preach Christ crucified, he says, we preach Christ crucified. And the cross is meant to be the center of everything we do as Christians. It doesn't mean that every message has to be about the cross. It just means that the cross informs everything we do. Because the natural tendency is to move back to ladders. And that's not what the church can be about. The church needs to be a place that we are continually telling people, one another, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. On your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. No matter how deep your sin goes, his love goes deeper still. It's been dealt with. Past, present, he didn't make forgiveness possible. He actually forgave. The question is, is will we receive? Will we receive it? The beauty of grace is God's ability to love us in our brokenness. As my dear friend Craig, who died of brain tumor, I, I just close with this died of a brain tumor in 2011, or excuse me, 2014. I walked through cancer with him for five years. I led him to the Lord, and then he's a pediatrician. He lived for five years, and right before he died, he was in Indianapolis, and the tumor came back, and eventually on a family vacation. He called me scared and asked if I'd come and visit him. And I fly, and, and so I fly out to Indianapolis, escorting his two oldest daughters who were at a soccer camp in Portland. And I had to go into that room and watch their mom and Craig tell the three girls who weren't even out of school, um, grade school, middle school, high school, that their dad was going to live 30 more days. And it was heartbreaking. And I, and I remember uh, when the girls all left, they went back to the hotel because they were so upset. And I'm in the ICU with Craig and he had me, he goes, did you bring your guitar? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, Will you, will you play me some songs? And I said, yeah. So I wrote him this song called Sweet Peace. We're, I'm going to share it with you guys today. And uh, um, I played it for him. And he goes, he could barely talk. And he's like, that was awesome. And then he's like, can you play some more? And so I'm like, sure. So then I played him Neil, Neil Diamond. And he was like, that was super awesome. <laughs> and we, like, we just did covers. Before he knew it, the nurses were actually wheeling people from the ICU over to the doorway. Because Craig was so filled with life. And, so, and we were laughing and we were singing songs together. And then they were, the, the, the nurses took the other patients out. And there was Craig. And this nurse came in, this beautiful black woman, probably in her early 40s. And she, she walks over to the bed and she says, honey, we got we to gotta change you. Here's Craig. He's a, he's a marathon runner. Uh, he's only 45 years old. And his body has been like whittled away. He looked like an, like an Auschwitz victim. He couldn't walk. And he's wearing diapers. And she's got to change his diaper. And I was thinking about this, the dignity of a man, like our modesty, our desire, you know, I don't have a ton of dignity and I have a gold front tooth and throat tattoo, but we all have it somewhere. Uh, And here he is, he's being stripped naked, incapable of caring for himself, never going to see his girls get married, never going to make love to his wife again, never going to do all the things that we take for granted every single day. And, and, and he looks into this woman's face in a place of the most absolute vulnerability. And, and he's, he looks into her face and he says to her, you are so beautiful. And he didn't mean it in a weird way. There was just a spirit about her. And she started singing over him. And she began to weep and he began to weep. 
And she, and he goes, she goes, no, honey, you're the one that's beautiful. And I saw in that, this, this moment, Craig went to be with the Lord literally like two and a half weeks later with us singing around his bed. And he was a man who was only a believer for five years and I had not seen anyone live with the cross at the center of their life like he did because he knew how impossible life was, but how good Jesus was. And he knew that though the outward man was perishing, the inward man was being daily renewed. And that he wasn't free from the struggle, but he was, he was free from the need to be free from it because he knew that death was not the ultimate reality. Death was actually the means by which he would be ushered into the ultimate reality of life. And he became the greatest living testament to why I believe so fervently in this Jesus, that he is good, that life is impossible, it's even terminal, but God is good. And life is everlasting. When the cross is our center, everything falls into place. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us into the truth of who you are. That we would see our need for this center. For on the cross, Jesus, you cried out the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Revealing that it is your heart to forgive and that we have things that need to be forgiven. Lord, on the cross, you said today you will be with me in paradise to a common thief, a criminal, possibly a murderer, dying next to you, just because he said, Lord, remember me, and recognized who you were and surrendered his life. Nothing he could do, couldn't add a thing to what you, what you <laughs> did for him. He could only die next to you, and yet he received salvation. You said to your own mother, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, providing for the needs of another while you hung in agony. You said, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You experienced the isolation and separation that we deserve so that we could be brought into communion with yourself. Lord, you said, I am thirsty, reminding us that you understand the depths of human need hunger in our world, the thirst in our world. And you said, anyone who is thirsty, come and I will give them water, a water that never runs dry. Lord, you said it is finished, which means that everything that needs to be done has already been done in you. And you said, Lord, into your hands, I commit my spirit, realizing that death was not the end, it was just the beginning. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. We love you, Jesus.